The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's continue to worship our great God by hearing from His Word. We are in Hebrews chapter 1 today. We're looking at verses 5 through 14 of Hebrews 1. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter so we can, can, we can get the sense of the, the flow of the whole chapter. But we are looking at Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. So Hebrews chapter 1, reading the entirety of the chapter, let's once again be reminded that this is God's holy and inspired word. Let's give it the attention that it is due. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. The angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your, your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, when you think of angels, what do you typically think of? When I think of angels, I tend to think of that chubby baby with wings and the Charmin toilet paper wrapper. I'm not sure. I probably date myself saying that, but I seem to remember that. So I think of toilet paper when I think of angels. Uh, perhaps you think of those angel figurines that used to be and uh, probably still are in Christian bookstores if they're around anymore. I saw them recently at Cracker Barrel. You know, they look like uh, a female in, in a dress that's shiny and sparkly that have wings on them. Perhaps that's something that uh, you think of. Maybe you had a little angel pin uh, that you would put on your visor. Now, my grandma gave me one that said, don't drive faster than what your guardian angel can fly. I have no idea why she gave that to me. I can't figure that out. But perhaps that's what you think of. Uh, if you've been in reform circles for any decent amount of time, you uh, 
probably think that talk about angels is what crazy charismatics do. I mean, after all, how much teaching have we heard on angels? I know I haven't. Now, when you consider all of this, these common or popular views of angels in our day, I don't think anyone needs to sell you on the idea that Jesus is superior to angels. Of course, if they're a little figurine or a chubby baby, what's, what do you need to convince me of? But we see here in chapter 1 in Hebrews that the author is laboring to convince his readers or hearers that Jesus is superior to the angels. He uses seven Old Testament quotations to do so. He stacks them up. The question is why? And there's a few reasons. First, it became common in some Jewish segments that angels were being worshipped as it was intermixed with some pagan thinking. You see that, for example, in Colossians 2.18, where Paul says, no, no one disqualify you, insisting on worship of angels. So we know that was around. But also by the mere fact of what angels were. They're not a, a chubby baby or a, a, a woman in a dress. Uh, angels are described as... Those who are majestic, powerful, militant, glorious, thus making them a frightening creature. They stand guard in the holy presence of uh, God. Uh, they can kill 185,000 in a night. In fact, so awesome are they. You may remember from the book of Revelation that the Apostle John, the Apostle, he should know better, bows down on more than one occasion to worship an angel. You know, you think about millions of people come to Yellowstone every year. Why do they come to Yellowstone? They want to see awesome aspects of God's creation. And you'll see people, uh, the joke that I always talk, say about Yellowstone is, you know, you can get in a 40-car pileup to see a squirrel cross the road. You know, people, and especially with a grizzly bear, people want to see a grizzly bear. And people are just surrounding and taking pictures. If that's the way it is with earthly creatures, imagine the way it is with heavenly creatures, the angels. So there is a propensity then to worship them. The third reason is that uh, the Jews saw angels as important because, as Scripture says, Galatians 3.19, the Old Covenant was put in place by angels. So if the Old Covenant was put in place by angels, then what about the New Covenant? I mean, Old Covenant, we had angels. New Covenant? We have no such thing. Certainly the Old Covenant was better, and that's one of the temptations that we've seen in the book of Hebrews. They want to go back to the Old Covenant. And so this is why God, the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, is addressing this people here with regards to angels. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, what we're going to learn is that if Christ is better than the most glorious creaturely beings, angels, then He is better than anything in all of creation. 
The mountains filled with prey. Psalm 76.4 says, Better are you, O God, than the mountains filled with prey. A better than hunting, fishing, camping, outdoor activities, any animal, any human, anything in all of creation. Jesus is better than And that's what we should learn and we should take away from this. So we're going to see two characteristics revealing that Jesus is indeed better. And they are his person and position. And this is a loose outline. They both overlap. But first, his person. Who he is. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So remember again, this flows out of verse, verse 4 where it says that Jesus has inherited a name greater than that of the angels, being seated at God's right hand. And now the author is seeking to prove that in the rest of chapter 1 by using seven Old Testament quotations. The first quotation is here in verse 5, and it comes from Psalm 2-7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now Psalm 2, if you remember, begins with the question, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why are they rising up against the Lord and against His anointed one? Now, anointed is the Hebrew Mashiach. That kind of sound familiar? Where we get the word Messiah. And the New Testament Greek translation of Messiah is Christ. That's why we call Him Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ refers to him being the Messiah, being the anointed one. Being the anointed one means that he's set apart by God to a very special office, to be the prophet, priest, and king of his people to save them from their enemies. And that's what the king did. That's why Psalm 2 is talking about him as the king. I have set my king in Zion. So it is talking about him as king. Now, this Messiah king is identified as God's son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, earlier we talked about him being eternally begotten of the Father. That is, the son being eternally begotten of the Father with no beginning or starting point. There was never a time when this wasn't the case. The Father communicates his entire divine essence to his son. That is why the Father is called the Father and the Son is called the Son. So we talked about that previously. However, while the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, what this this verse focuses on is the manifestation of His begottenness, of Him being the Son, in that He is installed as King. This was a common ancient Near Eastern practice. When the King would transfer power, would transfer the kingship to his son. He would say something to this effect, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Now obviously, it's not the same day that he was born or begotten. It's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech to say, I am manifesting you to be my son in this very important transfer of power from me being king, to you being king, thus revealing that you are my son, because the son was the rightful heir to the throne. And so it's very kingly. And this fits the context, because remember, the Hebrew writer is proving here 
what verses 3 and 4 said, that Christ sat down at the right hand of God to take his throne on high, thus inheriting a name greater than that of the angels. And Psalm 2.7 is used as proof of this. It is tied to Christ taking a seat on high, taking his throne on high. Now, this is also why the Apostle Paul ties Psalm 2.7 to Christ's resurrection. As Acts 13 says, when Paul is speaking here, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the Apostle Paul is saying, we bring you good news. God has kept His promises by raising His Son from the dead. And here's proof that God would raise His Son from the dead. Here's proof of the resurrection. Psalm 2.7 You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. How did Paul arrive at that conclusion? Well, the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is God's Son. He has taken His seat on high upon fulfilling His duty to accomplish our redemption. After making purification for sins is when He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And in order for that to happen, He had to be raised from the dead, thus showing that He did accomplish that work. He didn't see decay in the grave. This is when He received all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why in the Great Commission, at His resurrection, after His resurrection, the day of His resurrection, He says, all authority has now been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. It was upon fulfilling His work, the covenant of redemption, that's when He received His promised inheritance of Him being King and receiving His people. And that began at the resurrection. And this is why Romans 1.4 says that He was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. So this manifests His him being the Son, being the begotten Son. And in this vein, the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 5, Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. If you were to turn to 2 Samuel 14 and read it, you would see that this is God, given the Davidic covenant, God speaking to David about his son after him, who's going to build the house him and take his throne. And we would say, oh, this points to Solomon. The immediate context would show that. And it immediately does point to Solomon. But it also points to a greater Solomon. Because this is what our verse says. It says this is being spoken about Jesus. He is that true son of David who would come after David to build God a house and take his throne. And what is the house that, that Jesus is building? What is the temple that Jesus is building? He is building His church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because as the New Testament says, we are that house. We are that temple. So this is pointing to Christ. And the author of Hebrews continues to stack the quotations. The third Old Testament quotation is in verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship Him. This comes from Psalm 
in the Hebrew, which is called the Masoretic text. Okay, so the Hebrew text. It says, worship him, all you gods. And our English translations reflect this. So if you were to turn to Psalm 97.7, your translation would likely say, worship him, all you gods. However, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament done in the 3rd century, it says, worship him, all you angels. And this shows that the Hebrew writer is following the Septuagint. And in following the Septuagint, it says, worship him, all you angels. So angels are called to worship Jesus. And firstborn is a title given to the one who's the heir. It doesn't mean he's the first one to be born. Because even those who were not the first one to be born were called the firstborn. It's referring to a title and a high position. Thus, in Psalm 89.27, it parallels the firstborn with the highest king of the earth. And that's who Jesus is. And so the angels are called to worship the firstborn when he's brought into the world. And this is, where we, this is I think, what we see in Luke 2. The angels show up. They direct the shepherds to this newborn king. And then all the angels break forth in praise, saying, Glory to God in the highest. Now we see a comparison with the angels in verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And this quote comes from Psalm 104.4. And it's not referring to what angels are made out of. Okay? It's not saying this is what uh, they materially are made out of, fire and wind. Uh, they are spirits, and so they are immaterial. Rather, this is referring to their function, duty, or work. They are like the wind in that they swiftly do the will of God. They are like fire in that they have a burning zeal to do God's will. And they do, in fact, do it with intense and burning desire and swiftness. The same burningness and swiftness of a forest fire. And this is why in the Lord's Prayer it says, Actually, just it just lost it. Oh, you're. I mean, come on, it's the Lord's prayer. I don't know it. You know, every, it's it's not like it's something that's recited all the time. Uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. How is it done in heaven? Who does God's will in heaven? The angels swiftly doing it, and so earth is called to emulate this. And this is actually what makes angels so great. It's not their power, per se. You know why? Because fallen angels, demons, have great power. But they're despised because despite having power, they are evil. Rather, angels' greatness is in their swiftness and burning zeal with which they do the will of God. Really, nothing can be better than to stand in the presence of God to serve Him and do His will. But that doesn't sound so appealing to our flesh, does it? I recently uh, enjoyed some hiking with a family, the, the outlaw trails uh, outside of Cody. And the name of the trails really struck me. Uh, outlaw Trail. 
above the law trail. Twisted sisters trail. And what struck me was none of them said law-abiding trail. Uh, submitting to authority trail. Uh, being obedient trail. That's not glamorous, is it? Is it? What's glamorous and glorious to this world and our flesh is being an outlaw. Being outside the law. Being independent. Being your own boss. But the glory of the angels is a swift without delay. With, with burning zeal, do the will of God. Say, not our will be done, but your will be done. Being eager and at the ready to do whatever God says. We do have an example from the holy angels of what holiness looks like. However, as glorious the, as the angels are, their glory pales in comparison to the sun's. And this is seen in the next series of Old Testament quotations, which brings us to the second characteristic of Jesus that reveals that he's better than angels. And this focuses on his position. So we saw first person, second position. It's still going to be some overlap. But now we see a contrast to the angels in verse 8. Whereas with the angels, uh, they swiftly do his will. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And this comes from Psalm 48. A psalm that is addressed to the king of Israel, which of course is Christ, ultimately. And from this quotation, the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is showing that whereas the angels are servants, swiftly doing the will of God, the Son is God, whose will the angels are doing. Notice the explicit reference to Jesus as God here. But of the Son, he says. So this is being spoken about the Son. What's being spoken about the Son? How is the Son being addressed? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But of the Son, He says this. He is indeed God. And His reign is a reign of perfect righteousness. It says the scepter of His kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. A scepter is a metonym. Uh, that is a symbol for His reign and His rule. Our Lord perfectly, righteously, and in perfect holiness and justice reigns. He never does anything wrong. And while we look around at this earth, and we see egregious evil happen, we see major injustice happen, and we say, God, where are You? Why have You not done anything about it? Rest assured that He will, He will punish every single sin with perfect justice. Every sin will be paid for in full. Either because it had been paid for by Christ in full. We who believe justice has been satisfied, praise be to God, or eternity in hell by those who will bear their sin forever. But because His reign is one of perfect righteousness, we can trust His authority. We can trust His reign. We can submit ourselves to Him. We can obey His commandments without fear. But His righteousness is the basis for His throne. His reign, as verse 9 goes on to say, 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Really amazing that this morning we sing about the Holy Trinity because we see that here in chapter 1. Your throne, O God, so it refers to Jesus as God. Then it says, your God. So Jesus is God. But he also has God the Father as his God in his humanity. We see that that is his God. So we have two distinct persons of the Trinity mentioned who are both referred to as God. And our Lord Jesus loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Did you know that Jesus hates? We talk all the time about Jesus' love, right? But Jesus also hates. It says He hates. He hates wickedness. It's good to hate. To hate the right things, of course. Wickedness and sin. In fact, Scripture commands us to hate. Did you know that Scripture commands us to hate? The Holy Spirit says in Psalm 97.10, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. And you're called to hate. Now, I think we might take a step back and say, whoa, that sounds kind of weird because of how much we are surrounded by the world's philosophy. Uh, the world, uh, really the devil, tries to spread his propaganda by saying, hate has no home here. That's hate speech. And what they're referring to is condemning sin, even perverse sin, which the Lord Jesus hates. And while we are to always be kind, gentle, with patience, correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God would grant them repentance, we are to be kind, gentle, patient, yet we are to hate sin, hate evil. And not just the evil that has personally affected us or caused us to suffer. But to hate all evil for the Lord's sake. Because it is an affront to Him. And this is what Jesus did. In His righteousness, He loved righteousness and hated evil His whole time. He didn't just outwardly conform to the law. He truly hated evil and loved righteousness. You really see the, the patience of our Lord being surrounded by evil the whole time. Yet He was patient. He endured. And He showed grace and kindness to sinners. Yet He hated sin. He hated wickedness. He loved righteousness. And here's the good news for us. While we are to do that, we don't do it all the time, do we? And that's bad news. But the good news is, Jesus did that for us. Even in His desires, even the core of who He is, His heart, He loved at all times what is right and hated at all times what is wicked. And the Lord Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness before God. That righteousness is counted as ours apart from any works of our own, apart from any righteousness of our own, apart from any conformity to the law of our own. We are to be conformed into His image. We are to be conformed into His law. But that's not the basis for our righteousness before God. Praise be to God. So, 
It's good news that He loved righteousness and hated wickedness because that is our righteousness and the basis for Him being exalted, Him being anointed with the oil of gladness as our verse says. On account of this, He has been anointed with the oil of gladness. And this is a figure of speech to refer to being appointed to something. He has been appointed to His throne. And He has been appointed to His throne with the oil of gladness. A figure of speech referring to having oil poured on one's head. Back then, when people didn't take baths and showers regularly, it was a wonderful thing to have oil poured on your head. It was a joyful thing. That is used as a figure of speech to say, the joy Jesus has received on account of His work is beyond that of His companions, which is referred, which is what is being referred to as the angels. His companions. Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. And this is why the author of Hebrews adds, with regards to his position in verse 13, to which of the angels has He ever said, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This comes from Psalm 110. And no angel has the privilege of reigning like this, only our Lord. And the author of Hebrews also focuses on Jesus' divinity, which clearly demonstrates the superior, superiority to angels. In verses 10 through 12, it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So again, this is being spoken of the Son regarding His superiority to angels. Follow the progression here. Verse 8, But of the Son, He says, and then there's a quotation in verses 8 and 9, and then the author of Hebrews says in verse 10, And, so, this is flowing from verse 8, But of the Son, He says this, and also this. And then that's when we get to verses 10 through 12. This is being spoken of the Son from Psalm 102. He is the one who laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of His hands, clearly referring to Him as the Creator, as God. And because He is the Creator and not the creature, He is also unchangeable, which is what this verse brings up. Whereas the creation will wear out like a garment, His years will have no end. He remains the same. That is one of the key differences between the Creator and the creature. He does not change. We do. Do you know that while you were sitting here, you changed? You got older. Not by a year. We didn't celebrate a birthday in the middle of this. But you got seconds and minutes older. You increased in your years. Uh, you may find yourself more encouraged. You may have changed in that you got more sleepy. Even though you have no excuse. You got a full hour of sleep last night. Extra hour of sleep. No, I haven't seen anyone sleep yet. That's why they turned the lights off right here. Because I can't see you guys actually. But God remains the same. God has no beginning. He has no end. God does not change, which means He does not increase or decrease in anything. That's what a change is. You increase, you add to something you didn't have before, or you decrease. You diminish in something that you used to have. 
That's not God. God does not increase or decrease in anything. God did not grow older. He's infinite. He doesn't add to His life. God does not become. He is. He is the great I Am. It's the great reformer Herman Bavink said, the difference between creator and creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. And so we can thank God that there is no turning of shadow with Him. Thou changest not, and therefore His compassions, they fail not. As He has been, forever He will be. And so when He says He will remember our sins no more, we can be absolutely sure of it because God can't go back on His promises because God can't change. He will always be who He is. He will always be faithful. And the author then compares Christ's reign to the angels by saying in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So whereas Christ is the King whom we are to all serve, they are simply servants. And they serve us. They are ministering spirits. The spirit is that which does not have flesh and bones, as Jesus said in Luke 24-39. And they are servants specifically to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. What is meant by who are to inherit salvation? Well, we need to remember that salvation is more than conversion. More than going from unbelief to belief. And this is typically how we use it, right? Bob got saved. Well, but what we mean is Bob went from an unbeliever to a believer. That's a legitimate use, but it's more than that. It's not only regeneration. It's not uh, only justification. It also includes sanctification and glorification. That's all involved in salvation. And it seems like here the author of Hebrews is using those who are to inherit salvation in the sense of glorification where we are saved from all remaining remnants of sin, this wicked world, and all aspects of uh, the curse. And it seems like that's what he has in mind, because it's really the tenor of the letter of Hebrews. He's writing to those who are before uh, getting to glorification, those who need to persevere. And so it seems like given that the, the, the audience that this is to this is what he has in mind and also it's difficult to know how angels serve only those who are to be converted but then afterwards not now you're probably wanting to know i would imagine how exactly do angels serve us who believe or maybe you're not i just close the sermon now in case you are i'm going to take just a few extra moments um I was told that I had uh, an extra hour to preach today. I just uh, take a few extra moments to, to talk about this. And as I do, I just want to say that there's still some uncertainty that we don't really know all the aspects. But, but how do angels serve us? Let's start with this. A way in the past, which um, they likely do not do today, and that pertains to special revelation. Angels were used to bring revelation from God. Uh, the angel Gabriel brought to Daniel special revelation of future events. Daniel chapters 10 through 12. The same angel also brought revelation to uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, with regard to his birth. And then he brought uh, news of Christ's birth to Mary. 
So angels were used to bring special revelation from God to his people. However, since the canon is now closed, it's doubtful that angels continue to bring this revelation today. Secondly, they are used by God to bring judgments on earth. Uh, Satan, as a fallen angel, albeit still an angel, had power over weather events, or what we call natural disasters, that he brought against Job's family. We, we read that in the book of Job. We also see in Revelation 8 that angels are given power to create natural disasters and bring judgments upon the earth. It's possible that God uses them in his providence for these purposes. Uh, we don't know for sure, but if so, it would seem that he would, they would do this for the interest of the church. Third, this power seems to be used in the spiritual and cosmic realms. In Daniel 10, there's an angel who, came, who comes to Daniel and said he was delayed 21 days because the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood him. However, Michael, the archangel, helped him. Uh, given that this is an angel who was helped by another angel, it seems like the prince of Persia who withstood him would also be an angel, an evil fallen angel or demon. I mean, prince is a term for angels. Satan is referred to the prince of the power of the air. And what human can hold up an angel? So there seems to be uh, some sort of cosmic battle going on between angels over the people of God. Uh, evidently, the angel of Persia did not want Daniel to receive the message that the angels sent to him in order to encourage him. So, we do actually see this in Ephesians 6. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Against the rulers and authorities in cosmic places. And I think that's something that, that needs to be considered. We don't need to worry about being crazy charismatic by, by saying that. Uh, Satan, as a fallen angel, is at work. Particularly in preventing people from receiving the word of God. Just as the, the prince of Persia prevented uh, this angel from bringing this message to Daniel, Satan and the demons operate in the same way. Satan is said in 2 Corinthians 4 to blind the hearts of unbelievers to what? To prevent them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. Uh, we also see demons, or fallen angels, use false teachers to spread false doctrine. It says doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4. In 1 Kings 22, God has a deceitful spirit, a fallen angel, sent to King Ahab, which spoke through his false prophets to entice this king to go out in battle so that he may die as judgment. So we have these evil spirits that are used to deceive people. Satan stirs things up to keep people who preach the truth quiet. That is a real thing. But with good angels, there is certainly an interest in the church. And this is another consideration. God's wisdom is on display in the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10 says, Angels are watching what's going on in the church. And we even see that in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about proper roles between men and women in worship because of the angels. Why because of the angels? Angels 
beloved, are watching us even now. 1 Peter 1.12 says that the angels long to look into these things. And Jesus said that angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner repenting, the 99 who need no repentance. Additionally, another reason. If Satan, a fallen angel, is able to tempt us, then holy angels may be able to encourage us towards obedience. John Owen mentions that while angels do not communicate any power or strength to us, uh, they may provoke and stir us up to act and exert with the strength that God the Holy Spirit has given us. Uh, perhaps it's recalling to our mind the truth. And this makes sense because Satan is said to deceive and speak lies and that might affect us. Uh, we don't understand how that works. Uh, Satan tempts us. We're called to be on our guard. We're called to resist him as a fallen angel. Uh, why were we tempted suddenly? Was it us? Was it the devil? It was likely the devil stirring up what is in us. And if evil angels can affect us and good angels are said to minister to us, then it is reasonable to conclude that good angels may, in some sense, encourage us. Now there's a question of so-called guardian angels. Now, do they exist? And what's meant by a guardian angel is, is, an, is an angel that is specifically assigned to an individual. And this is widely embraced in the early church. Uh, it was universally received in uh, Roman Catholicism. It was cautiously accepted by Lutherans and rejected by the Reformers. Uh, whether or not there is a particular angel assigned to each believer is hard to say, but there are indications that they do protect and guide believers. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 18.10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see their the face of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, and then Psalm 91, uh, speaking specifically with regards to Christ, but by extension his body, his believers, says that angels provide protection from Satan's snares. But we don't know if, uh, why generally speaking, we, we do see that they are involved in guiding and protecting believers. We don't know if they're specifically assigned. One particular angel at all times specifically assigned to one particular believer. Finally, I, I think their example can serve us. They swiftly do God's will with burning zeal. God tells us to pray, to be like them, to do their will, or to do God's will as they do in heaven with a burning zeal. But another way that they can encourage us is to consider how they marvel at our salvation. They long to look into our salvation. They marvel at it. And if they who did not receive salvation marvel at the salvation that we have received, then how much more should we? We are the, we are the recipients of a great salvation. Our Lord Jesus did not put on the nature of an angel. He put on our own nature. Angels who have sinned have no hope for salvation. He did not come for angels. He came for us. He put on our very own flesh and blood, being born of a woman, born under the law, to fulfill the law for us so that we would have a righteous standing before God. And He came to pay for our sins in full so that we would not face the wrath of God. Angels 
are doomed forever who have fallen. We who have fallen have hope because of the great salvation we have in Christ. And He is seated at the right hand of God interceding not for angels, but for us. If angels marvel who did not receive the salvation, then how much more should we not marvel at our Savior whom angels bow to worship? Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for this passage. We thank You for Your your work. We thank You that we can, even as we consider angels, we can be encouraged to do Your will, to give You thanks for the salvation that You have given to us and not to angels. We ask that we would marvel at this, that we would praise You for it, that we would grow in our love and adoration of You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.